As most of you will know, these past five weeks, we've been working our way through a series that sprung out of the new vision and mission that we launched as a church this fall kickoff. Anyone here brave enough to try and say the vision out without any prompting? Don't look down at your bulletins, that's cheating. No one? All right, you can put it up. Our vision is to become the kind of community where anyone can belong so that they might come to know and be transformed by God's love. That's something that the staff here, the elders here, feel that God has been moving us towards for some time now. We've seen a lot of life come about through this idea of belonging, and it's something that we want to cultivate more of here in the church. And so we've been preaching through the five keys to becoming a community of belonging. The first one that Brent started with was proclaiming God's word, knowing that ultimately God's word tells us we are all sinful, and yet we are all loved, we are all saved by grace, and that that levels any human playing field, that there is nothing that can allow us to look down upon another person and judge them for not being as good as we are. The second, uh, actually we have it in a slightly different order here, the second is worshiping together, which Brent actually spent two weeks on. And we talked about the fact that in the church, when we gather, we should come with a sense of expectation because we experience God's presence and we also are able to celebrate the diversity of ways that he moves in our midst. And it reminds us that God is a rich God, a God who blesses us in many different ways, and that when we come together, we actually are able to see God in ourselves in new lights. The third key is praying honestly. Being willing to come before God privately as well as with one another and be the broken, weak, needy people that we really are and recognizing that God wants to meet us as our Father, that that's one of the central promises of the gospel, that he wants us to, to recognize our dependence on him and to, uh, to pray, to ask him to meet us where we're at. Number four that we had on our list, meeting in small groups. And that's the one we're going to camp out on today. And finally, next week, we're going to talk about serving one another. And we believe that as we do these things as a community, as we give ourselves over to them, we will more and more become the kind of community where where people, anyone, can belong in their true self sense. That they can actually uh, allow themselves to show off their needs, show off their vulnerabilities, show off their... Uh, problems and the bad decisions they made and yet still be loved and accepted so that they can come to know God's love and his grace in their lives. I said we're going to talk about meeting in small groups today, but actually we're going to do something a little different today. We are going to talk about meeting in small groups, but I've proposed to the elders a change to what we call that fourth key, and I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. So, We're going to build towards it, but number four, meeting in small groups, is what we're camping out on. We're just going to approach it in a little bit of a different way, and we're going to do so through Acts 2, 42 to 47, if you want to open up your Bibles there. I'm going to open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us. 
and that we, we are able to gather here and to experience this sense of expectation that Brent talked about the last couple of weeks, um, that you will speak to us and that you will change us through your word, through the worship, through the table, through our testimonies. Father, that you, you will meet us in many forms here and that we will be able to celebrate you in our lives. I pray that we would be able to do that and that you would use my words to speak to people this morning uh, and that you would restrict me from saying anything that's not of your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were going to ask yourself what an ideal church looked like, if you were going to say, I'm going to look for a faith community to belong in today, I would imagine one of the best things you could do is look at how the early church looked in the book of Acts. And I think here in Acts 2, 42 to 47, Luke gives us a pretty good summary, a pretty good snapshot of what the early church looked like and, and why it flourished the way that it did. This passage comes right after the Apostle Peter preached uh, kind of the, the massive sermon that brought in over 3,000 people into the church uh, on the day of Pentecost. And it talks about the fact that those who received his words were baptized and there were added about 3,000 people on that day. And then what Luke describes to us is the community that ensues. And uh, the community that ensues is a community that's growing, and, and, and numerically as well as in maturity. And what we read is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging the distributing and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What do we see here that we would normally list when we're talking about an ideal church. I think there's quite a few things that are pretty expected and really line up, I think, well with what we're already talking about in our keys to a community of belonging. The first thing that's mentioned, the fact that they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, which we too dedicate ourselves to when we look at the Bible and what the prophets and apostles handed down to us and has been preserved over thousands of years. We also see this mention of breaking of bread, which refers back to the communion service. The fact that they were coming together and recognizing Christ's sacrifice on a weekly basis, and that that was foundational in their community. We have mention of worship here. It tells us that they were worshiping God with a glad heart. And we might say that. That's something we are expecting in the church. Again, these line up well with the, the keys thus far. But then there's this really odd phenomenon that's taking place in regards to what they do with their possessions. It tells us they had all things in common. What are we supposed to make of that? That's a very odd phenomenon. It's not something that historically we see a lot of evidence as having carried on. And yet, Luke spends a lot of time talking about this. He mentions the apostles' teaching in passing, 
But he spends a lot of space talking about fellowship and breaking bread together and sharing possessions and receiving food with a glad and generous heart. This is something he camps out on in this paragraph. There are two or three dominant theories about what it is that's taking place here. I think it's worth talking about each and every one of them. The first one, the one that appealed to me the most when I was in university, probably because I was a political studies student, is that here we're seeing some sort of pre-communist society. I don't know if you've heard that before. But it's often talked about the fact that, you know, here we have a classless society where people are not rich and poor, but they're willing to sell everything and just own everything together. And for people in my circles who were into kind of that left-wing movement and Christians at the same time, they would say, this is really ideal. This is something we should be seeing in the church today, that, that it shows that communism or something like communism is really ideal as a system. But I think when you look closely, it doesn't hold a lot of water. Mostly because communism, the modern form of communism anyways, really is a coercive thing. Communism says you don't have a choice to be part of this. You have to give over all of your possessions and be part of this new system that levels everybody. It really centers on the modern state, which didn't even exist back then, But I think more fundamentally, it centers on this notion that what's yours is ours. Whereas there's nothing of the sort going on here. It actually says that people are willingly giving away their possessions. You might say that instead of saying what's yours is ours, what's going on here is people saying what's mine is yours, or what's mine is ours. There's very much a willingness to this that I think doesn't really line up with what most people want when they say we want a communist society, one in which people don't have a choice of whether or not they give away their possessions and serve one another. Another thesis that's a little bit less radical in its proposal is that what we're seeing here is a real strong emphasis on social justice within the early church. This is, this is similar, except for it really takes into account the fact that it seems to be very willing. But what we see is that Uh, the Christians here want to serve the poor with all of their might, and they're willing to follow some of Jesus' more radical teachings and literally start giving away as much as they can in order to be able to do that. I think there's some merit to that. I really do. I think this lines up well with Jesus' interactions with the rich young ruler, for example, asking him, are you storing up treasure on earth or are you storing it up in heaven? So I think this idea that we should be looking to serve the poor and create a just society is, is really a biblical idea. But I think the problem with this thesis is that it focuses too narrowly on the one line that's here about possessions, about the giving away and possessing things together. And it misses the broader implications, the deeper implications of this, the, the character trait that runs all through this entire passage. And so my, my thesis, my argument, and what I think is taking place here, and I think it's what a lot of biblical scholars would agree, is, is what's taking place is something more fundamental. 
something that, that could be described as love, but more specifically, I would describe as hospitality. Now, this is a, an interesting word because I think we use it out of context a lot in our society. We don't really know exactly what hospitality is. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the uh, challenges our culture introduces about hospitality later. But what I'd like to do is, is define what I mean by hospitality and what I think the biblical definition of hospitality is. Hospitality, simply put, is inviting other people to share what's yours. That's something that goes beyond simply giving away your possessions and sharing that. In fact, I think it starts with something that we have a lot of challenge with in our society, and that's sharing our time. I think the, the most basic thing that we do in practicing hospitality is to say, I'm going to be with you, get to know you, invest my time in you. Which is challenging in our society where time is very limited a lot of the time. We also share our blessings with one another. The things God has given us, we are willing to open up to other people. That includes our money. It also, I think, really includes our food and our home. And this is where we do have a good understanding of hospitality. I think we see all through the Bible and right here, we see there's great value in being willing to say, come, come be in my home, my place of safety and comfort. Come, enjoy some food with me. This allows us to fellowship together, to get to know each other. This, this allows us to invest time in one another. In fact, this was Brent's number one complaint in the proposal I sent to the, to the elders about changing our fourth key. He said, Ben, in your description, you didn't mention food. <laughs> that is the number one reason why I go to other people's houses in small groups and such. <laughs> and it's true. There is great power in food. It brings about a spirit of joy that is very much worth inviting others to become part of. And finally, I think that hospitality, on a, on a deeper level, really requires not just sharing our time and our blessings with other people, but it requires sharing our emotional and spiritual life with one, with one another. And I think that's why, as Luke describes everything that's going on, and he says they were fellowshipping, and they were sharing their possessions and belongings and, and giving it to people who had need, it talks about the fact that they attend the temple together, they break bread in their home, and they receive their food with a glad and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They're, they're actually inviting one another to celebrate together and to, I imagine, grieve together when things are difficult and to really link arms in terms of their emotional and spiritual life. And that's what real biblical hospitality is about, is about being willing to say, What's mine is yours. In fact, in some level, I am yours. So why does Luke spend so much time drawing out this portrait of the hospitality that took place in the early church? What's so important about it anyways? The answer, I think, is that hospitality is a good marker of the fact that we really get the gospel.
I saw a video recently on a site called Q Ideas. It's kind of like a Christian version of TED Talk. And it has a, an amazing set of speakers who rotate through and, and talk about things they've been studying, researching, writing about. And author Sky Jathani did a 10-minute video on the difference between human religion and God-given religion. Human Christianity and God-given, genuine Christianity. And I think his explanation really helps understand why hospitality shows us that we get the gospel. Jathani describes four different states of human religion. He talks about life under God, which is your classic old-fashioned religion, which says you have to appease the gods or God, otherwise he's going to crush you. This is the proverbial, take your virgin, throw her into a volcano so that you get a good harvest this season. And although in Christianity we don't see a lot of virgin throwing anymore, (laughs) what we do see, what we do experience, is this sense that sometimes we are at risk of falling under God's judgment, especially as a nation or as a church. And you hear quite regularly people say, the reason why this volcano erupted or this earthquake took place is because that nation had walked away from God and was ungodly. And if that's your primary lens for understanding God, then ultimately what it does is make God one more thing to be feared in this world. And this is Jasani's thesis, is that all human religion stems from fear and tries to alleviate it, but fails to do so. The second mode that we operate in, often, is life over God. It's says, God is a nice thesis who helps us understand the world and, and do life better, but God himself is really inconsequential. This is what we get when we say, you know, Christianity is primarily about learning how to be a better Christian couple or a Christian family, or this is how we can run our nation better or run our finances better in a godly way. And again, there's some truth to that. The Bible has lots of wisdom to offer. But the problem is when you eliminate God from the picture and make God something that is a tool to be used for a better life, you quickly realize, I fail. I can't really implement these as perfectly as I ought to be able to. And so it too ends up leading us to a place of fear. If all I've got is some nice principles to live by, I'm probably not going to do so well in life. The third human form of religion that Jathani talks about is life from God. And this is our wonderful North American version of Christianity, the the good old-fashioned prosperity gospel, right? God is here primarily to give us lots of things, to bless our socks off, to make us feel good about ourselves. And the problem with life from God is that it doesn't account for why godly people go into hardship quite often. And so it pads you against some of the world's fears sometimes. But ultimately, it lets you down. And you begin falling back into this idea of life under God. Maybe the reason God didn't bless me and I'm facing consequences is because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't strong enough, something of that sort. 
And lastly, the fourth human religion that he identifies that takes place in the church is life for God, which is Christian activism. And he, he accuses, and I, I will own the fact that the people who are most guilty of selling this one are often uh, young Christian ministers. And, and this is the idea that you really should stop thinking about what you get from God at all. You shouldn't think about it as something to, to gain, but instead you should give your whole life over to God and serve him. And, and the gauge of whether or not you're a Christian or not becomes how many wells you've dug or how many people you've saved. And kind of like life over God, the problem with this is that ultimately it leaves you entirely depending on your own strength. It doesn't help you with a world that's too messy and often limits how effective we can be. It sets a bar that nobody can really live up to. And the effect of all four of these, according to Jethani, is that it starts out in a position of fear, trying to figure out ways that we can alleviate that fear. And each of them ultimately is an attempt to take control, to, to, to control our life and make it better. But the problem is that as soon as you try and take control, as soon as you think, I, I get to decide what it looks like to have a good Christian life, and I get to determine my own fate, then it leads to pain and strife and conflict, because normally we have to take away control from somebody else. And so we end up with conflict, which of course leads back into more fear in this world. And this is always the effect of human religion, is this deadly cycle where we're afraid of things, we try and seize control, and we end up generating conflict, which leads to more fear. Jasani then turns and says, there is a true form of Christianity, however, that stands in contrast to all four of these human religions. There is a God-given form of Christianity, and that is life with God. What the gospel really promises us is that we can experience God's forgiveness and love and an eternal presence in our lives. That because of what Jesus Christ did, those who return to God can never be separated from his love. And in him, they can actually find the greatest joy that can ever be found. They have on their side somebody who can take all of this world's problems and make them good. The gospel doesn't promise a nice, easy life, a life of blessing. But what it does promise is that God will be with us through whatever we face and ultimately bring about joys that we couldn't even imagine before that. And Jethani says the effects of life with God is that it ultimately breaks the fear cycle. It begins with faith, trusting that God really is who he says he is and that he really will walk with us through everything that we face. And that leads us to a position of security. I don't have to fear anything. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever separate me from God's love. And that brings about freedom. We are then able to put behind fear and act in a way that really defies a world that is often clutching and grabbing and holding on to things out of fear, trying to control the world around them. And as you experience that freedom and you experience the joy that comes with relinquishing these things, it builds your faith. And so again, we have a cycle, faith, security, and freedom that build upon each other. So what does that have to do with hospitality? 
But we define hospitality as inviting others to share in what's ours, which means sharing our time, sharing our blessings, and sharing our emotions. But I think ultimately, all of that is to say that hospitality is freedom from the fear of not having enough. This is one of the most fundamental fears of human nature. We are all afraid that this life is going to run short. That there's not going to be enough for me to live, to be happy, to actually experience life to the full. And so we hoard our resources and we compete against one another to try and control our world and say, well, maybe I at least can carve out a genuinely happy life, can carve out a life that really is full. But it always comes at the expense of other people, and it always leaves us grasping for more. The gospel frees us from that. It says you don't need more stuff to be happier. It says even if you don't know how you're going to pay your next bills, you can experience real joy because you know your Heavenly Father is there with you through it and will provide for you. It says you don't have to clutch and grab from other people. You are able to let go of that control because you know the one who has all control is on your side. He will work all things for your good. And this is something that all through Scripture, the Bible shows us, God wants us to experience in our communities. I had Amanda read a passage from Leviticus 19. That might have seemed a little confusing. Here's this very archaic-sounding Old Testament passage with a lot of laws about loving your neighbor and how you're supposed to go about not swearing against them falsely and how you're not supposed to go about stealing from them. But even back then, those laws are not simply designed to be restrictive rules. They're supposed to be an expression of loving your neighbor as yourself, which is stated very clearly in that passage. And God even expects Israel to extend that, not just to the people who they love and know the closest, but actually, I had Amanda read a, a, a section from a couple of verses down that said, if you have a stranger in your land, somebody that you would naturally fear because they're different than you, you should still offer them the same hospitality that you would offer to the people who are already in your life. One of the markers that we really got the gospel, that we know God is present in our midst and is able to save us, is the fact that we can extend ourselves to, uh, to others even when they're quite different than us. And we see this all through the New Testament church. One of the real markers of the New Testament church is the breakdown between barriers. The breakdown between men and women, the breakdown between slaves and masters, the breakdown between Jews and Gentiles. This is something that Paul comes back to over and over again in his writings and you see being lived out in Acts. People say, I am not afraid anymore. And so I'm willing to extend what's mine to you. So, we have our keys to a community of belonging. Proclaiming God's word, worshiping together, praying honestly, and what I proposed and the elders agreed would be a good shift is that practicing hospitality is one of the keys to a real community of belonging where people can be welcomed in 
and experience God's grace and love in their life. That they might ask questions. Why are these people so giving of themselves? And we can say, because we're not afraid of the world. We have a God who loves us no matter what, and he's better than anything this world has to offer. There are some things in our church, dare I say it, that keep us from being that. There are real barriers to hospitality in our world. The first, I think, is the many false gospels that circle us all the time. Normally, I'm not keen on being polemical and and arguing that other people are wrong. But I really do think that in our culture, we are often surrounded by messages that tell us to live, to think, to do things in a way that is completely contrary to what Jesus Christ actually wanted for us. We already mentioned one, the prosperity gospel, which says God is really just here to bless you. I think it's a heinous lie. (laughs) He is here to bless us. God is wanting to give us deep joy in life to the full. But he's not here to give us what we think we want. And that's the key problem with the prosperity gospel, is they take all of the things we want and say, if you just believe hard enough, you just want it hard enough, you'll get this. And God says, no, many times you won't get what you want at all, but you'll get me. You'll get me. That's the real blessing in the midst of all of this. I think we also have in our churches often a gospel that says Christianity is really all about getting to heaven. That if we say the, the prayer, then we're going to be, you know, at the end of this life, brought into God's presence. And it really has nothing to do with how we live our life here and now. I think that's dangerous. I don't want to diminish the importance of heaven. But heaven is life with God. And I think the biblical promise is that here and now, we are actually supposed to experience a taste of heaven because we get to experience life with God and enact that in the way we treat other people. I think often the, the way that our gospel is preached really comes out as more like life under God. Fear his judgment. If you die tomorrow and you haven't prayed the prayer, he's going to crush you. And all that we need to do is save ourselves from that. Not saying there's not a grain of truth to it. I believe hell is a reality. But hell is a reality because it's life without God. We are separating ourselves from the one source of life that we have. And the gospel we need to preach is that you can have life with God here and now. This is not just a fire insurance clause. We also have a lot of cultural misunderstandings about what hospitality entails. And the number one, the first and foremost that I think is important to shoot down, is that we often use the word hospitality when what we really mean is entertaining. There's a world of difference. In fact, I would say that in many ways, entertaining is the opposite of true hospitality. Entertaining is founded on the idea that me and my little family unit and you and your little family unit have to compete against each other and show that we really have a good life. And so we have this notion that we bring people into our house and we put on a good show. 
we set out all the right place settings, we feed the right foods, and, and we have this nice, happy, perky family that looks good. And it impresses the other person. We've kind of scored points of some kind. And if you recall in my definition of hospitality, I said the deeper form of hospitality is being willing to share our emotional and spiritual life with one another. I think when we do entertaining, what we very often do is undermine any potential for really getting to know one another and to share in the deeper things of life. We need to do away with this idea that hospitality is about hosting or entertaining and say, what I really want to do is share whatever I have, even if that involves allowing people to see I'm a little bit messy. But I still do have something to offer. I do have something to give in terms of time and sharing that at life with one another. And the last one, and this one's really important, is that sometimes the thing that holds us back from really blessing others is lingering fear. Honestly, I'd say all of us are in that category. Not one of us can say we've really reached the place of maturity where we don't fear anything this world throws at us. There's always going to be limits to how freely we're willing to give. And this is important because so often when we talk about something that shows us we really get the gospel, what we end up doing is saying, this is the thing we need to focus on building. This is the thing that we need to get to. If we don't get to this, then we're not really a Christian. That's not at all what I want to say. Because if there's lingering fear, if you're afraid to give of yourself because you don't know where your meal is coming from next, or if you're afraid to give of yourself because you don't want people to see you're really a broken and and rocky person, what I'd invite you to do is not start doing those things meaninglessly, but to press yourself back into God's Word, to come back to the fundamental truth that Jesus Christ died to invite you into a relationship with God, to make that possible. Because that's where the fear is banished in the first place. In in our five keys, the ordering is deliberate. We have to start with the gospel as revealed in the Bible. We have to start with celebrating the good things God's doing in our lives. We have to start with being willing to pray and ask God to meet us where we're at and actually experience his presence in our lives. Before we're going to get a place, get to a place where we're able to give freely of ourselves. So what I'd like to do is not to say, Auburn, we need to be better at this. But I'd like to say, I'd like to invite you to take little steps of faith to enact some of these things. And maybe it'll help build your faith a little bit. But if you're afraid, that's okay. So am I a lot of the time. Specifically, at Auburn, what we'd like to see, what I would like to see, I'd love to see people meeting in committed small groups. I told you I'd come back around to that. I have experienced great joy in small groups in my past. When I've been able to gather regularly with a number of my friends and just eat together and celebrate the things God's doing, open up the scriptures, learn a little bit, but primarily just love each other and be honest about where we're at in life pray with one another, and grow in our faith. In the church, sometimes small groups are kind of a a formal, separate category of ministry. 
And this is something we've been talking about as leaders. We don't necessarily want to see a lot of home church style meetings where everybody's coming together and doing the latest uh, media you know, series that has come out from one of the big top preachers. That's not really what small groups are about. What we want to see is that everybody in this church is able to gather with other believers outside of this large group gathering and really invite each other into one another's lives. And we'd like to see that permeate all of the different ministries that we have going on here. Women in the Word is a great example. They gather and they do a lot of teaching and things like that, some scripture memorization. But what they always do every week is they break off into small groups and they talk to each other and they pray with each other and they live life alongside each other. I think Women in the Word is a great example of one of our ministries that has naturally integrated meeting in small groups, showing each other hospitality right into the structure of their ministry. And that's what we'd like to see is more opportunities for people to meet together on that level. And I can say one of the blessings I've had recently is meeting on Tuesday mornings with a group of guys who prays for each other and blesses each other that way. Come on out at 7 in the morning if you're up then. (laughs) It's great. Another thing that I would love to see here at Auburn, and this really comes back to more of something that is lacking in our culture specifically, I'd love to see more mentoring relationships going on here at this church. One of the biggest gaps in our society is between people who are older and younger. And so I've been having conversations recently with a couple of the other church leaders and and young men here at the church. I know many young men who say, I would love to have people come alongside me and mentor me and meet with me and invite me into their life so I can learn from the things that they've gone through. And I, I know as a young man, that's been one of the great blessings God has put in my life. I can actually look back over my life and in, in stages kind of go, here's who God put in my life to speak into it at this point, and here's who God put into my life to speak at this point. And there's four or five men who to this day I can turn to and say, I need help. I'm confused about this. And it's a huge blessing. I would love to see men and women inviting younger people into their homes and saying, come, be part of my life. It's a, it's a really God-given way to grow in the church. And I'd also challenge younger people. If you want that, you don't have to wait for somebody to invite you. You can go pursue it. It's a lot of, I think a lot of older people are scared as much as younger people. And if you were to just approach them and say, hey, can we get together sometime? A lot of older people would say, yeah, I'd love to do that. And finally, last but not least, I would like to see us able to share our blessings with other people. Wouldn't it be great if we as a church became so integrated into one another's lives and so integrated into the life of people here in this city that we naturally wanted to start selling our possessions for the sake of blessing somebody else. That's not something that I think needs to be mandated or forced. I think when you get to love somebody well enough and you actually see their needs, it's actually pretty easy to give stuff. I've had a few relationships in my life where we've been able to do that with people, to bless them with little things that, yeah, they were costly for us. But it was a real blessing in the relationship because we knew they were flourishing. I'd like to see that happening here in our midst. And I'd also like to plug the fact that this year we are starting for the second straight year to provide meals for the warming room downtown. There's a, there's a number of people 
particularly over on this side of the church, who have been integrated into that ministry and have built deep relationships with people there and are excited to be able to provide meals. And I'd like to invite all of you. Liz and Linda are looking for people to, to provide a meal once a month. Talk to them. See if you can get involved in that. And don't just provide a meal by cooking it and dropping it off. Stay for an hour. Get to know the people who are there. They're pretty neat. I think Greg and Chris will tell you that firsthand. Let's become the type of church that's hospitable. But I say that as an invitation. Not as false pressure, but because I have experienced the joy of knowing God is in my life. That he really will walk with me through a whole lot that I didn't expect him to. And I hope that we as a church can know that gospel deeply enough to be able to live out some of these things regularly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in our life and the fact that you want to be our loving Father. And that as we experience that, we're able to extend that love to other people in the form of hospitality. God, walk with us. Let us experience your love and be mindful of it as we go through our week and let that spill over into the lives of others that we might be able to give even the precious little amounts of time that we have, the precious little amounts of resources that we have, and and to be vulnerable and honest with one another where we're at because there's nothing more precious than being able to celebrate and grow and learn together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.